Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Um, today we're going to wrap up a series that we started uh, back in the beginning of this month called How Not to Be Your Own Worst Enemy. And what I want to do today is in wrapping up that series, I actually want to jump back to something I discussed briefly Wednesday in our midweek Facebook live gathering. Um, but to, to get there, I want to take you uh, to a, a place that many of us have not been in in a while, which is an airplane seat. Let's imagine you're sitting in a window seat, Uh, you've had a few hours on the flight, you kind of wake up, you look down, Um, this is, you know, a dream world where COVID-19 doesn't exist, and you look down and staring out the window, you see um, this, it says, welcome to Cleveland. And um, as you're descending, a sense of anxiety creeps over you and takes over completely because as you look down and see welcome to Cleveland, your heart begins to race because the meeting you were headed to was not in Cleveland, but Milwaukee. You see, um, Mark Gruber uh, in 1978 painted this on the top of his building in the direct flight path of Milwaukee's International Airport. He did it as a practical joke, so as people flew over the Milwaukee Airport, they would have a sense of panic that, oh no, wait a second, I'm in Cleveland. And... um, And so that for almost 40 plus years, he's been giving people heart palpitations who are rushing to Milwaukee only to glance out the window and think they're headed to Cleveland. And the reason I wanted to start with this is I feel like this picture this week captures for many of us uh, the sense that we've had. That we went into this week uh, last Sunday, um, you know, there's still this kind of dangling idea of May 4th and, you know, we'll kind of business back to normal and rhythms and school and all of those kind of things were just kind of uh, like lingering on the edge. And then for many of us this week, that bubble got popped when a governor uh, announced that school was going to be um, at your house for the rest of the year and not at the schoolhouse. And for many families, uh, there was weeping, there was gnashing of teeth, there was sackcloth and ashes and screams to the heavens of why. And then the the kids, they were crying too, right? <laughs> We've all had this week where um, some of us, it just became permanent that you're an educator and that your internet's just going to be slow through June because everyone in the house trying to connect to their online meetings and online classes and that the frustration that this week has had and the grief that this week has had, when I saw this picture, it just it was like, that's it. Many of us were headed to Milwaukee and we look out the window and we see Cleveland. And we actually are landing in Cleveland. And there's a passage I want to look at that I, I touched on briefly Wednesday at our Facebook Live session that I think kind of captures a little bit of that essence that some of us are walking through right now in this season. That little bit of that essence that you feel when you look out the window and you see welcome to Cleveland when you're headed to Milwaukee. And in this specific kind of moment of this passage I want to look at today, that we would find some direction and some guidance and perhaps even some warning 
about how we can not become our own worst enemy when things don't turn out the way we hope they would. Uh, the passage is found in uh, one of the kind of famous prophets of the Old Testament or Jewish scriptures, a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing pretty in a pretty dark period of Israel's history. Um, the letter that we're going to read today was written about 2,500 years ago. Um, and it's in one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, um, probably second to the Holocaust for the Jewish people, um, for just being such a defining moment for, the, for those people. And so Jeremiah is the prophet, which means essentially he was kind of the mouthpiece, the voice piece of God. God would speak to him and he would speak to the people. It's kind of a different time period. And, um, and so Jeremiah writes this letter to a group of people who had been carried into exile. He writes, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There's a lot in just this phrase right here, in fact. See, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is one of those great kings of the ancient world, he was a, a phenomenal strategist, um, military kind of tactician. He, he understood how to fully conquer and suppress a people. He was a student. He had studied and learned from other great warriors of the ancient past. And his father, in fact, was a general. And so Nebuchadnezzar grew up learning how to lead an army and how to crush an enemy. And in around 580 BC, he arrives on the threshold of Jerusalem to, to fully squash out this rebellious kind of group of people who had been fighting against him, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar completely crushes them. He, he runs, surrounds the city of Jerusalem, cuts off supply lines, and it gets so dark during that period. Um, there's famine, there's no food, there's no water, that people begin to literally consume the bodies of the dead. It's cannibalism. This is one of the darkest periods in ancient Israel's history. And eventually, they're able to break through, and when they break through the wall, the army of Israel, the Jewish kind of based in Jerusalem, were so completely destitute, they were so um, downtrodden, that they, when the walls broke, instead of fighting, they all fled. And Nebuchadnezzar then rerouted his army to run after them and to crush them. And as Nebuchadnezzar came back into the city of Jerusalem after he'd broken through the wall, um, these people that were skin and bones, malnutritioned, stench of death everywhere with no army to defend them. He takes all the brightest, the smartest, and he puts them in shackles and he chains, and he makes them walk from Jerusalem to Babylon. From Jerusalem to Babylon is about 550 miles. Um, Babylon, while not a city today, is an ancient set of ruins that's about 50 miles south of Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. This 550-mile journey would have taken roughly three weeks walking by foot at walking about 14 to 16 hours a day, nonstop. So just the challenge of moving would have been completely debilitating and, and crushing within itself. And so 
all of the brightest, the smartest, because what Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the Assyrians, a previous empire that he had conquered, was this a way, this very devious way of crushing your enemy. You take the brightest, the smartest, the sharpest, the most physically, mentally healthy, and you, you bring them back to your land. You forbid them from eating the foods they've eaten. You forbid them from speaking the language that they know. You make them learn your language. You make them learn your history. You don't just crush your enemy. You turn your enemy into one of you. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar knew to do. And so this is why he takes this group of people into exile. Because in exile, he was seeking to remove anything distinctly Jewish about them and turn them definitively and the Babylonians. And this is where these people are. Imagine walking into, I, I remember the first time I ever traveled to um, an international city. It was in between my junior and senior year of college. And I remember landing in um, Bangkok, Thailand at the middle of the night. I'd never traveled, barely traveled even beyond the region I grew up in. And as I stepped off the plane at Bangkok's international airport, at midnight, the humidity and the heat hit me in the face. It was like walking through a wet blanket. It was miserable. And it was a little overwhelming the next day, waking up, walking out of the hotel, and kind of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the, the horns on the cars sound different, people on uh, scooters flying around, families three, four wide sitting on a scooter, zipping around this major city, there's no, no sign I recognize that I can read. Everything about the experience is completely debilitating, completely upending. And this would, have, would have, this would have been what it was like for those people walking into Babylon. Babylon at the time was an incredibly impressive city. Babylon's walls were about 40 feet tall. They were wide enough that historians believe that chariot races used to happen around them. On top of that, many historians believe that Babylon actually had a series of three walls. So if you broke through the first wall, you still had another one. If you got through that wall, you still had a third wall. It was an impregnable city. You could not conquer Babylon. Babylon conquered you. The, the statues, even from the book of Daniel, you can kind of, kind of understand this a little bit when um, they kind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have their like moment um, that... There was the equivalent of skyscrapers in Babylon. There was uh, an, an ancient structure there that was about 20, the equivalent of 26-story building. So Babylon was a city that you saw from a distance that would take your breath away. It was beautiful, it was stunning, it was colorful. And so you're a people who are walking into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And going into that city, their past was gone. And this is the letter he writes. Jeremiah says, hey, God has told me to tell you some things. The God of Israel says to you, those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. They're like, okay, okay, God's going to speak. God's got a word. Like God's going to say something to us. Maybe God's going to confirm what we're already hoping and wishing for. And what God says to them is this. Build houses. Settle down plant gardens, and eat what they produce. This is a little different than what they hoped for. Walking into that city, they were probably imagining, man, I wonder how long we're going to be here. And 
God, to, to further drive home the point, he's not just saying you're going to be here for a season. You're not just going to grow a couple seasons worth of crops. And I want you just to build a home. He says, I want you to build a family too. Marry and have sons and daughters. And then on top of that, find wives for them. Not just have children, have grandchildren there. Increase in number. Do not decrease. And this is a completely opposite of what they'd hoped for. In fact, what they'd hoped for in verse 8 and 9, God continues. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Just a little side note here. Um, what, what was happening in the midst of that was people were claiming God had said things to them and they were going around in the nation of Israel uh, that was kind of based in Jerusalem. They were going around telling them, hey, God has told me to say that this won't be very long. This won't happen. The reality is, is that the same challenge they were having, we still have today. People still walk around, people on television, claiming God told them to say certain things that end up being things that you're like, I don't think God told you to say that. And people have always throughout human history, used God as a weapon to force people to follow what they want, not necessarily what God wants. And God is saying, look, these people, they don't know me. They don't represent me. But what he says in this thing that I think is very interesting is he says, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Now, this is where I think it honestly gets a little bit personal for you and I. Because here's a group of people, and I think they probably wandered around asking the question, man, when are we going to get to go back to normal? When do we get to go back to life the way it was? They've got so much grief. They've got so much frustration. They've got so much uncertainty. They've got so much pain that they're just, they're looking back and they're wondering, when do we go back there? Now, it's important to realize that the people who were taken in the exile, if you remember the start of the letter in Jeremiah 29.1, it says that these were the prophets, the priests, these were the, the, the elites, the educated, the affluent, the people who had power. These were the upper class of Jerusalem. These people had had it really nice, sort of, in Jerusalem. And they're wanting to know, when do we go back? This is what's going on when he says, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Why are they saying these things? Why are they dreaming these things and proclaiming these things? It's because they know that's what the people want to hear. See, there's this thing about us. It's not just about them. I watched this with my son, in fact. My wife and I were laughing this morning. She was showing me a video of feeding him yesterday. And here's my little boy who, a lot like his dad, likes food. And she's feeding him, and he's, he's getting so mad in between one spoonful and the next. He's like, eh. And it's, you just watch his level of frustration elevate. And finally, by the end of the video, his entire body is shaking. He's so angry. And then Jenny does something. She gives him the spoon. And all the anger, all the frustration melts away. 
See, he wasn't frustrated because he wasn't getting food. He was frustrated because he wasn't in control. My son would have rather had control over food. He would rather have the spoon in his hand than the food in his belly. Because none of that food was getting in his belly when that spoon was in his hand. It would get on his tray, it get on the floor, but it was not going into his belly. And as I'm sitting there laughing at my son, I realize that he is demonstrating for me the same thing I see in this passage. That you and I are so committed to feeling like we're in control that we'll, we'll surrender so much to walk with the illusion that we're in control. We live in perhaps one of the most uncertain times for many of us that we've ever lived in. And what happens when you live in uncertain times, when you're filled with grief, when you're filled with pain, confusion, is that we begin to look for ways to escape. We begin to look for ways of distraction. There are probably things that would have never, ever taken off but they've become viral because people just, they want to escape. And I'm convinced that we will choose to believe lies that tell us when it will end over the uncomfortable truth of things we just don't know. And we will follow people who will tell us they know when it will end. Over the, we'll choose that lie over the truth of things we just simply don't know. Because we would rather have the control and the certainty in our hands than even food in our belly. And not only that, we start to, to distort when we start to dream, when we start to try to gain back control. Distortion creeps in. I don't know if you've noticed this. A couple of weeks ago, my wife, uh, our family was eating and um, we were talking about a potential future uh, family trip that we'd been looking forward to, go see family. Um, my son is, is growing so fast, and we were like, man, it'd be great for some of his extended family to see him. And so we're like, you know, maybe this summer, like late summer, uh, maybe we could drive and go visit some of our extended family. And um, as we're talking about that, I start talking, because it was the food we were eating, reminded me of a restaurant I grew up eating at. And I'm talking about the restaurant and how good it is, and it's like kind of bizarre, and everybody at the table is kind of looking at me like, huh? And, um, my, and I'm like, yeah, it was, you know, it was like, it was at this place when I drive to school every day, and it was, you know, really awesome, and I loved it, and my daughter's like, looks at me all sincerely, he's like, daddy, when we, when we travel to see family, can you take me to where you grew up? Like, I want to experience all this stuff you're talking about. This place sounds awesome. And I'm like, yes, honey, I would love to take you to where I grew up. And then the aftermath, I was like, what am I talking about? Like, I just made where I grew up sound like, like Disneyland Junior. Like, this is a phenomenal place. But yet, where I grew up was, was not a pleasant kind of place. I remember in high school... The guy beside me in my biology class, the first biology test we had, um, we sat down and I remember him leaning over and saying, Psst, hey, dude, I didn't study for this test. Look, 
I'll, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you a piece of crack rock if you let me cheat off your test. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And then he pops open this vial of Blistex. He's like, look, man, it's, good, it's, good, uh, it's a good piece of crack rock. Lick it. Lick it. It'll numb your tongue. This is how you know it's good. And I'm like, you know, hard pass, man. Um, but you can look on my sheet of paper. Like, you know, I, like I would sit beside this guy, and he was counting out his 20s and $100 bills during class at times because of all the drugs deal, all the drug deals he'd made at school that day. And I'm sitting there talking and dreaming and reminiscing nostalgically about all these places I loved growing up. And all in my head, I'm like, where I grew up was a violent, poor, hard place. And my daughter in her head thinks it's Disneyland. You see, what happens when we start to dream, when we get nostalgic, is that we start to distort. And she's in her mind saying, man, I just want to go there. And I think the reality is, is that God is speaking into this group of people that are struggling with something that, quite honestly, you and I struggle with sometimes too, especially in a season of uncertainty. That we begin to grasp for control, even if it's not real. But you know what? A bottle or a pill or social media just mindlessly scrolling or food, we can find escape from that agonizing, painful sense that we're not in control anymore. We can cover up that low-grade sense of uh, despair that comes up when we live in this kind of season. And that God knows that they struggle with that, and so he's reminding them, like, be careful for the distortion that bubbles up when you find yourself in a difficult and distant land. And his wisdom for them is is something that's kind of served as a basis for a, a, a phrase I've been using with our team over the last um, couple of weeks that I keep saying to our team, because I've been hearing people talk about this, I keep saying to our team, we're not going back. Like there is no going back, but there is a moving forward. And almost every single team meeting I've been in over the last couple of weeks, this has been the phrase that I've been saying to them and to myself, that we're not going back, but we are going to move forward. And this is God's wisdom for them. He says, look, plant gardens, raise a family, bring, bring in life. Because if you're not careful, you're going to distort you're going to try to grab hold. Like, let's just be real. Some of us are missing things that we used to complain about. Some of the things, like we used to complain about how busy we were. We used to complain about how our schedules were overwhelmed, how we didn't get enough time with our family. We used to complain and kind of say, well, if I only had more time, then I'd grow in my faith. If I only had more time, then I'd take, you know, I'd spend a little bit more time with my kids or I would, you know, develop those other skills or I would kind of grow in this hobby or I would X, Y, or Z. Call my family more. We used to say, if only. And now we're living in that season. And now we're complaining about all the things that we used to wish for in this previous season. And I think if we're not careful, that, that challenge about going back, that we'll go back to complaining. We'll go back to some of those habits. And if I was putting money, I would put money on the fact that some of us will probably, two years from now, 
go back to the same complaints we had before and say, man, remember when we were in COVID-19? I mean, I know it was hard, but that part was kind of nice. Remember how we didn't, we just sat on the couch. We had a lot more free time to eat as a family together. Or I had a lot more free time. I didn't always feel rushed to the next thing. And that I don't want us to miss the lesson that God is speaking to this group of people that I believe is also for us too. And that there are some things in this season, as hard as it may be, that can be a gift for us. And if we're not careful, we'll waste it. If we're not careful, we'll move past it. And we'll go back to the way it was. And I'm not sure that you or I really want to go back to the way everything was. Maybe you have lost a job, and I don't want to minimize it. But six months ago, it might have been the same job you were complaining about, that you hated. And you've been given this gift of potentially getting to dream a new dream for your life. And that maybe there's some, maybe there's some gifts in the soil Maybe there's some things to go back to the analogy God had used at the beginning when he told them to plant gardens. That maybe there's some things that can grow in Babylon that never grew in Jerusalem that you might like. Maybe there's some things that can sprout up in the soil in this season that could have never sprouted up in any other season. Maybe this is the season that your marriage becomes stronger than it's ever been. Maybe this is the season that your relationship with your kids can grow deeper than it's ever been before. Maybe this is a season where you can get clarity around your professional future in a way that you've never been able to do before. Maybe this is a season with all the online classes being offered or all the organizations trying to give things away for free. That maybe this is a season where you can grow in some areas that you've never been able to grow before. That maybe there's a garden that can spring up out what feels like a grave that you're surrounded by. In fact, when we talk about moving forward, this is the question I want to ask you. What can you grow in this season? To maybe take a step back and to look at the entire picture. For, for me, what I'm thinking about for my little girl who I'm watching weep and grieve, even yesterday as we were walking by her school, and this really was her best school year she'd ever had. Last year was horrible. But this year, man, she has the most amazing teacher. She has a class with her friends. And even though there was a little bit of drama, like we were loving this school year. And then all of a sudden, just one day, she leaves school and she never goes back. And it was kind of eerie because we walked by the school yesterday and we kind of peeped in her classroom window and it was like frozen in time. Water bottles are still there because kids left that day thinking they were going to come back the next. It was like some horror scene from like a movie where a bomb had gone off and life had stopped. And we were just so broken hearted for her because she's so broken hearted. But there's something that we can grow in this season. We can teach our daughter to grieve. Because that's a vital skill that we all need to learn how to do. That we can teach her how to weep and to use her weeping in a way that becomes the fuel, that becomes the water for things to grow. 
Because she, she can learn in this season that the God that her family follows is a God who uses our tears to water the seeds of new things that can grow out of it. And that's not, that's not just poetic. That's not just profound. It's true. I've seen it in my life. And that my little girl can learn that critical lesson now, not later, when grief hits her in a far harder, deeper way. So what is it that can grow? What can you grow in this season? What can you spring up in Babylon that maybe you've never been able to grow in Jerusalem? Maybe there's some new business ideas for your small business. Maybe there are some new offerings that you can give. Maybe there are some new services you can provide. Maybe there's some new side hustles that can become real hustles of a nine to five when this thing transforms. Like, maybe there's something that can grow in you this season. And I don't want you to miss the garden, because all you see is the grave. And then this question, I think, is so helpful. What have you left behind that should stay left behind? What are some things in that previous season that you keep wanting to go back to that should stay in that season? Maybe it was your overworked calendar Maybe it was the shallow relationships you had with others around you. Maybe it was that workaholism that marked your life. Maybe it was the, the weak, distant relationship that you had with your kids or grandkids. Maybe it was the, the disconnectedness that you had with your neighborhood. Or with your friends in your life. Maybe it's habits. Or rhythms that should just stay left behind. That as bands begin to get lifted and as, as this year turns into the next and more and more things shift back into the way it was, that you don't go back to the way it was. And that if we're willing to do and answer these questions, to do the hard work of answering these questions, then I think we don't have to go back. We can actually move forward. And that we can pivot those things in this season that you've pivoted to. The walks that your family now takes in the evenings. Well, that those maybe could become permanent. There's a phrase that's just been bouncing around my head. It's like, what pivots need to become permanent in my life? What ways have I slowed down that should continue to show up even after the season has passed? And what should I leave behind? That if we're willing to do that, then I think what can start to happen is that we aren't our own worst enemy in this season. That we're not the barrier to the breakthroughs that we could have in Babylon. And all of that, no matter where you are, no matter what you believe, I believe can be helpful. But fortunately for you and I, there's more to this letter. And this is how I want to wrap it up. You see, God says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Through this entire COVID-19 season, this has been the idea that I keep coming back to. 
that's bubbled up as I read the Bible. That keeps reappearing in every single passage that I come to. The fact that our God has a plan to give us a hope and a future. Because when you're in a present that isn't pleasant, you start to imagine you have no future. And if we're not careful, we drift towards or we push towards or run back to any kind of hype that tells us we can't have a future. And yet what God's doing is he's reminding them, look, I know the plans I have for you. Now, God's talking to these people in a very distinct place, in a very unique place. And he's saying, I have plans for you. But I want to tell you that God, that same God has plans for you too. He has plans for you and your family in this season. I know some of you are grieving. I know some of you are heartbroken. We get your prayer requests and we've been weeping with you and praying for you. Because I, I know that some of you have lost dreams. Small businesses that you may never return to. A work site that you'll never go back to because you were laid off. A family that you thought you were going to have that was going to materialize that just disappeared right before your eyes. And it's so easy in this unpleasant present to believe we have no future. And when you start grasping for any kind of hype, you realize that eventually that hype is just hype. It's nothing. And God is speaking to this people and he's speaking a hard reality. He's like, look, it's going to be 70 years, but, but the 71st year. Oh, there's a hope. There's a future I have for you. I have plans for you. Good promises from a good God. And that for some of you today, I hope that you realize that there's a God still in the business. He's not, out of, he's not drawing unemployment. He's still in the business of giving hope and giving a future. And that for some of us, maybe today, it's just the believing in our heart and taking that first step of just almost inwardly with our hands extended saying, God, I need you to give me a hope. I need you to give me a future because right now, to be real, God, I don't feel like I have a future that's real. I don't feel like I have a hope. I don't feel like I have a foundation. And the God who called out to them, the God whose heart and love for them was present when he said, I have plans for you, has plans for you. Two. You can have a future. You can have more than just the unpleasant present. There's a, a, a song, um, one of the benefits of really kind of stepping in Christian faith as an adult is um, I, I have a lot of different musical traditions to draw from because I don't have any musical traditions. And so from Fred Hammond to the Gaithers, like I can draw like encouragement and inspiration and one of the songs that have been bouncing around in my head that I've been walking around singing um, is uh, like a country gospel song that says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. 
And because I know He holds my future, life is worth the living just because He lives. Like that song's been going around my head because it, what I love about it, He's like, I got a hope and I got a future. But you don't even have to have that future. Like you don't have to sketch out the future because He lives. You can have a future because He lives. You can have a hope because He's alive. You can face tomorrow. Because He's alive. Even if you're surrounded by death and graves, He can still plant, and bring gardens. There can even be fruit in this season for you, no matter who you are. And that the God who's brought that fruit before again and again and again can do that again to you and for you too. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.